I was terribly shy as a kid. My father said, why don't you go to an acting school and learn how to come in through a door without shaking? This is Claire Mullen, my aunt. My name is David Mullen and my aunt Claire is really the star in our family. I fell totally in love with acting, got the bug. Claire has been acting all her life. She's appeared on the stages of The Abbey and The Gate, in Fair City and on the big screen. She got her first part as a 20-year-old back in 1951. That debut performance was in a film that was made on Ackle Island off the coast of County Mayo. It was a film about sharks. During the fight, another, even larger shark, had gone into an adjoining net and the two had become hopelessly tied. To this day, Claire can't fully understand how she survived the shooting of the film because what unfolded on Ackle that summer was more dramatic than the film ever could have been. And it was the real-life events that hit the newspaper headlines. Mayo News, May 17th, 1951. The Ackle Coast, which has been the scene of numerous air and sea tragedies during the past number of years, has added yet another grim sea disaster to the list. Four men and one woman were engaged in the production of a film called Shark Island. Shark Island styled itself as a sort of docudrama. I was down in the strand waiting for him with the current, which is the name for the particular type of rowing boat we have in the west of Ireland. The film was based on the real-life shark fishing industry on Ackle, but was a fictional story about an Englishman called Peter who inherited part of a shark fishing business. Peter came over to Ireland to start a new life on the island and to learn how to hunt sharks. We were up early the next day. There was so much I wanted to do and see, and so much I had to learn if I was going to make myself useful by the time the sharks arrived and our work really started. It was told through pictures of people climbing the rocks, digging turf out in curricks, throwing harpoons at sharks, with voiceovers added in later. Teams of fishermen struggled to manhandle them up the beach from the surf before the shark could be cut open and its liver rendered down into oil to fill the rows of waiting drums. Shark fishing was a thriving business in Ackle at the time and it was shocking for Claire when she first arrived. I remember the first day when we arrived down to the sea and the sea was red and I realised that it was red from the blood of the sharks. The shark fishing industry came about from the need for oil, which was used for things like lighting and cosmetics. Basking sharks were plentiful on the western Atlantic coast and shark liver oil was a lucrative business. I'd never seen anything like the butchery and and hadn't been away much without my parents, you know. Claire was just 20. She was still learning her trade in acting school when an English film company, Anglo Amalgamated, came looking for a girl to play the part of Kathleen. The cottage was only a short step away, and my sister Kathleen told us she'd a brew of tea witness with a fresh bake of homemade bread. And I tell you, if you haven't tasted Kathleen's homemade bread, you haven't tasted anything. It was my first part, and be in a film it was a bit of a happy event for me right from the beginning I don't know if it was a premonition I know my mother didn't like the idea and she felt I was going into some sort of danger that she couldn't 
put her finger on. I said, don't be ridiculous, it'll be grand. Little did Claire know that she would find herself at the centre of one of the worst film set disasters of all time. After I came back, I almost fell into a nervous breakdown because I didn't talk about it to anybody. I kind of closed down. So in a way, it's good now to talk about it and to remember them and try and get closure. Almost 70 years later, Claire and I are heading back to Ackle. I'm getting the courage together, really, to go back to Ackle. We could have gone all the way to the island by road if we'd have mind to do so, for there's a fine bridge being built over from the mainland. It's July of 2017, and we're crossing the bridge from the Mayo mainland to Ackle Sound. We're just driving into Ackle now, over the old bridge, which now is a concreted one. It used to be wooden and quite bockety. And the, look, there's Sweeney's. Joe Sweeney, the man who started shark fishing in Ackle. And there's a shop now, which is a super value. When Claire crossed this bridge 66 years ago, she was part of a film crew of six. But only two of the crew would leave the island alive. The film crew stayed in a hotel called Guilty's. Guilty's is still going on Ackle as a pub and restaurant. How has it changed? Utterly, I guess it was rebuilt. Before it looked like a manor house with um, a big hall downstairs. Very few of the men who fished the sharks at the time are still alive. Yeah, I'm 86 now. Yeah. I'm not in the best of, of You're shape. You're brave. You're in fine fettle. <laughs> Michael Guilty is one of the only ones left. I was fairly young now. I was about 16 or 17. In the 40s, we'd have ran for miles to get away from the shark. Like. We were frightened of them. Yeah. And Didn't realise they were huh? just basking sharks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've put the film on for Michael and Claire to look back and reminisce. The sea looks very choppy. Oh, yeah, it sure is. Very yeah. treacherous. Yeah, good take there on the sharks. This. Yeah. And there's Charles. Yeah, Charles. With the cigarette in his mouth. Yeah. Everybody it's smoked in those days. We all did, didn't did you? There were only two voices in the film. But sure, there was no need for him to be finishing his journey sitting there in the back of a tough car. Sean and Peter were the characters. Oh, by the way, I haven't introduced myself, have I? Hmm? Uh, my name's Sean. Sean O'Donnell. The Sean character was based on a man called Charles Osborne. Charles Osborne came to Ackle to live and he loved it there. Charles Osborne was one of the victims in this story and his body would never be found. Osborne was from Donegal originally. Four years previously, in 1947, he had dropped out of the legal profession to come to Ackle to jumpstart the shark fishing industry, which he saw as having great potential. He lived in Ackle with his wife Brenda. They lived in a very primitive cottage there. Charles's wife Brenda lives in America now, but she remembers her time as a 27-year-old moving to this remote island off the west coast of Ireland. I remember going to Ackle very well. <laughs> With no electricity, no running water. But I, I had done some camping in my life, and so I knew one could exist without these things. 
you know, someone learned how to do it, you know. They had children, two boys. He was absolutely charming with his children. They loved him dearly. I hadn't the talent with my children that he had at all, no. He loved his sons very much. And he also loved the idea of shark fishing. He went to great lengths to learn how to kill sharks. He could be very amusing. He liked classical music, liked literature. He was something of a poet himself. Charles would be a significant part of the story. Not only was he an amateur actor in the film, but he was also a kind of guide to the island and the waters, despite the fact that for locals like Michael Guilty, he was something of a blow-in. He wasn't much of a mixer. And he wasn't a pub man, like. No, he used to keep, keep to himself. He had a good head on him. It might be a bit bigger than normal heads, but he, he certainly fancied himself. He was something else. Due to the dramatic nature of the shark fishing industry, Charles Osborne was invited to talk about it on the BBC. While he was there, he had a chance meeting with a man called Hugh Falkus. Falkus was a fishing expert who worked with the BBC. I must tell you that my friend Peter is an Englishman. Though he looks as much at home sitting there with his harpoon as any Irish fisherman who'd lived all his life on the West Coast. In the film, the character of Peter was played by Hugh Falkus himself. <laughs> he was an extraordinary man. Dead bloody lucky to have known him. This is Mike Daunt, one of Hugh Falkus's greatest friends. About five foot ten, very good looking. Huge shoulders, huge chest. A very powerful man, both in presence and in looks and in character. Shark Island was the brainchild of Hugh Falkus, and he was the film's producer. His BBC colleague John Sparks remembered him at the time of his death. He was a larger-than-life character, straight out of boy's own. He learned how to fish and to shoot before the age of 15. He was a wonderful helmsman. He was a Battle of Britain pilot flying Spitfires, got shot down in France, went into a prisoner-of-war camp, escaped, got back to England, became a, a freelance film director, and he was the world's leading expert on sea trout and is a guru in terms of fishing today. He used to have a programme on BBC freshwater fishing. Just down here below me is a shoal of salmon and sea trout, fresh run from the sea. He was a fine man. He was about six foot three or four and a mighty, a mighty swimmer himself and just when there was two or three of them, he used to go nearly every day for a swim. Hugh Falkus's life would ultimately depend on his strength as a swimmer. He was brought up on a houseboat in Devon for a lot of his life and in the Thames estuary as well. And so Hugh was, was a swimmer all his life. Hugh was a kind of film star type. He was very glamorous. I liked him, but I wasn't mad about him. It was late April in 1951 when the English film crew landed on the island. With Hugh, there was a lovely lady called Diana who was married to him. And I think this was a kind of honeymoon for them. Diana was 27 years old. She and Hugh had been married just four months previously. This woman, his wife of three months, was unquestionably the great love of his life. The cameraman was 26-year-old Bill Brendan and the director was 50-year-old Sam Lee, at one time Britain's greatest stuntman. I had a great 
affinity with Sam. He was a really nice man and Bill. They were both lovely to work with. Very, very gentle and kind to me. To me, they seemed very sophisticated. I was little Miss Innocent. But at length, Sean was satisfied. And we were off together on our first operational trip. Kathleen came all the way down to the harbour to wish us luck. Standing at the harbour near Keel in Ackle brings back the memories for Claire of the weeks of filming in this rugged and harsh location. Well, this is Perchine, where we would head off to do the shooting film. And it hasn't changed a bit, except for the revolting smell of the poor shark bodies. Past a rocky headland into a big open bay, I suddenly saw a large shark surfaced about 200 yards away. I did what I was told. I wanted to do everything right and tried to go with the flow. There was no script. It was freezing cold. I mean, the weather was dreadful. It was very bleak and cold, and you had to, most of the time, put on a coat. And, of course, when you're filming, sometimes you have to take all... You can't pretend you're freezing. Filming was a baptism of fire for Claire, particularly in the company of Charles Osborne, Charles Osborne, who was the artistic director and who also played the part of Sean, the shark fisher, he called the tune. He would do the recce and he would say what cliffs we would climb. He was very, very reckless and he would have us climbing cliffs and things and kind of unwarranted causes to frighten people like me and indeed like Sam Lee, the director, and Bill Brendan, the lighting cameraman. And we were all terrified, to be honest. The only one who wasn't was Hugh Focus. Brenda doesn't remember her husband Charles as being reckless. Reckless? Well, I suppose it's always a matter of opinion, isn't it? of what one person will do and another person thinks it's reckless and the person who does it doesn't think he's being reckless at all. But it, it, I, I could understand that somebody might say that about him, but he wouldn't consider himself to be reckless. The film crew had been in Ackle for about three weeks. Much of the filming had been done on land, but it was decided to do filming at sea, out at a location called the Daisy Rocks. We wanted to shoot rocks, the daisy rocks. This was very important for the film, for the look of the film, etc. These are jagged rocks which come up out of the sea, very dramatic rocks. Local fishermen knew the daisies to be dangerous and prone to sudden large swells. As he'd been fishing off Ackle for a few years, in theory at least, Charles Osborne knew this too. Whether he knew that the local people thought that it was dangerous to be around those rocks, the daisies. That I've never known. I've often wondered about that. Certainly, if he knew that and went there all the same, then that would be reasonable to call him reckless. But they were right, of course. Well, dangerous. Not only was the location dangerous, but the crew were using a boat of questionable seaworthiness, which was owned by Charles Osborne. He had a lifeboat. It was a metal lifeboat, been washed up. This old lifeboat, which had been washed up on the Ackle shore, 
had been full of holes and had sat in the garden being used as a chicken coop until Charles refurbished it. It had holes in it and it wasn't going to be any good. And he repaired it. He had fixed it up to fix in inverted commas. Very dodgy. I wouldn't have put, you know, my life on it. It was Friday, the 11th of May. The crew set off in Charles Osborne's boat and bad weather to film the Daisy Rocks. But the first attempt at filming out at the Daisies didn't go according to plan. We made our way out, but on the way, the camera was waterlogged. So we had to unfortunately turn back. We only had one camera and the next day, we started with a new camera. The next day was Saturday, the 12th of May. Weather conditions hadn't improved and a thick fog had come down over the sea. But the film crew decided to persevere and with a new camera on board, they assembled to make another attempt at shooting the Daisy Rocks. Just driving along, looking out at the Daisy Rocks. The Daisy Rocks look very unthreatening today. The sea is quite low, quite calm, totally different that day long ago. It's getting quite misty. On the day of the accident, the mist came down far worse than it is today. It was far denser. The crew was about to set off, but Claire was still suffering from the day before. The day before I was totally drenched and my face was very badly burned. And when we arrived at the location where we were going to move off from, I knew there was a pharmacy, the only one on the island. And I thought, I'll nip up while I'm waiting and see if I can get something. And maybe it should help, because it really was sore. So I talked to Bill, Bill Brendan, and he said, fine, go on, but um, don't delay because um, there's a fog coming in and we may try and, and go and beat it. It might be better out at sea. So as I was going up the hill, I heard him calling me back and for some reason, I'll never know, I didn't take any notice. I didn't come back. I just went on my way. I talked to the chemist and we had a tiny chat, about five minutes, and I came directly back. And when I came back, they were gone. Irish press reporter Keel Ackle. The party had set out from the pier at Keel at 11.30 yesterday morning to shoot scenes for a travelogue called Shark Island. There was only one man there on the shore, a fisherman. He was Scandinavian fisherman. And he said, oh, they won't get any filming done in this weather. They'll be back. So I waited for about an hour and they didn't return and it was getting colder and greyer. So I just took off back to the hotel and just went in and up the stairs. Nobody saw me. Fell on my bed after, you know, taking off my stuff. 
My clothes were wet. Little did Claire know what was happening out at sea. Michael Guilty was out fishing when he saw the film crew on their way out to the rocks. I was out in the car in the car when Osborne and his crew came through along the shore and waving and shouting and having a, having a great time. That would be the last time most of them would be seen alive. Though Michael had seen the film crew going out to sea, neither he nor anybody else knew they were heading for the Daisy Rocks. There was a double rock and the first one broke, but Osborne didn't know anything about the second one. One of the rocks was visible, but the other rock was submerged. When the sea hit this, it created a huge and deadly wave. And the second one put her to the bottom. When asked how the accident happened, Mr. Fawkes said it happened so quickly that he found it impossible to explain. He said the boat suddenly struck something and the occupants were thrown into the water. He was the type of fellow that wouldn't have had his sea chart with him. At the turn of the tide, the sea suddenly boiled up. One giant wave swamped the boat and crashed it against the partly submerged daisies. The wave was 20 to 25 feet high, he said, greater than any he had ever seen before as a yachtsman. And because it was a lifeboat, it was, there was supposed to be all sorts of equipment in it, but there wasn't. The film crew were now in the water, and they gathered whatever they could to help keep themselves afloat like petrol cans and the inner tubes of tyres. When the boat overturned, Mr Focus says, he gave his wife Diana, whom he had married only four months ago, a rubber ring. He also gave a ring to Mr Lee. He saw to it that the unit's cameraman, Bill Brandon, and the skipper, Mr Osborne, were supported in the water by petrol tins. And he roped them together in the form of a raft. Were Sam and Hugh's wife that were in the big tyres. They were tyres from aeroplanes or trucks, I'm not quite sure which. They were very big, much bigger than motor car tyres. And the spars and oars, and they put those together, and that was what Charles and Brennan would hang on to. Mr. Osborne first offered to go for help, but Mr. Fulkus, a powerful swimmer, decided he had a better chance of making it to Keel Strand. He thought the others would be able to keep afloat. He set off for the shore. They were extremely cheerful when he left and none had expressed the slightest fear. Their courage was magnificent, he said, and he was proud to have been with people like that. But their cheerfulness was misplaced. The sea was freezing cold and nobody knew where they were. Now their only hope of survival was that Hugh Falkus would be able to swim the mile and a half to shore. Hugh thought they'd all be safe. Hugh swam that great distance. Hugh Falkus's friend Mike Daunt is the only person he ever told about the accident. I said to him, how did you swim it? How did you do it? And he said, 90% of it I did on my back because you can relax more and you can have a better strength. And I always knew I was going to make it because I was determined that I would do for the crew of the boat more more than anyone else for my lovely wife. Very few fishermen were out that day because it was Whit Saturday, an unlucky day to go out to sea. But there was one boat close to the shore at Keem. Shortly after one o'clock yesterday, Michael McHugh and John O'Malley were lying offshore in their curragh when they noticed Mr. Falkus swimming towards them in an exhausted condition. 
Michael Guilty was in a nearby Curragh and was able to help get Falkus to dry land. And when our lad hauled Falkus into the Curragh to take him in ashore, there was only two or three men like in, in the Curragh. They pulled him up by the legs, you know, in, 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 in from the sea, and he went to get him in under cover. When picked up, Mr. Falkus was only able to give a vague description of the accident. They hauled him aboard and his first words were rescue my wife and the rest of the party. I tie them to a raft. Hugh Falkus then fell unconscious without being able to tell the fishermen that the rest of the crew were out of the daisy rocks. And after that he didn't remember anything until he w woke up in the bunk in the wee shed that they had built on the shore of Kim, which is where the men had taken him. We had a, a wooden structure yoke for carrying the shark nets, but Hugh Falkus, we, we, we rolled him on. He, he had a rough time, I can tell you. He, we rolled him onto the wooden wooden structure anyway and carried him up. I mean, we had to take it on turns, 10, ten minutes each. It was panic, like, you know. A search party was organised, but with Hugh Falkus still unconscious, they didn't know where to go. They incorrectly assumed that the crew had gone towards Ackle Head, a totally different location to the Daisy Rocks. There was about three or four currents, and there must have been four or five boats. And they all, out from Kim Beach, they all took a right towards Eclet, but, but it was at the Daisies the problem was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know they were at the Daisies. They didn't, no, no. They never dreamt that it would get down at the Daisies. I say it cost them two hours. Meanwhile, back in the hut at Keem Bay, Michael and the other fishermen were doing their best to revive Hugh Falkus. We took it on turns to massage him in the shed, and we jumped up. And he swore he was fit as a fiddle. He jumped up and shouted the daisies. We knew then what had happened. Like we knew it was it was at the daisies that the problem was, not at at Eckle Head. As soon as he shouted the daisies, we knew we were too late. We knew it was all over. Yeah. The search party found the raft near the scene of the accident, but nothing of the four missing people was seen, except a jersey known to have been the property of Charles Osborne. The cold water killed them all. Another member of the film party, Miss Claire Mullen, was to have travelled with the other occupants of the boat, but was left behind because she was late in joining the party. Claire had been asleep back in a room at Guilty's for several hours at this stage. And the next thing I heard was a kind of keening sound, like crying downstairs. And I walked out onto a gantry, a kind of landing. And when I looked down, people were crying downstairs in the big hallway. And I didn't know this, but they had heard there had been a dreadful accident and people may have been drowned. And I think they thought I was a ghost because I had gone in the morning and I hadn't returned as far as they knew. They sort of backed off. They got a fright when they saw me, you know. 
Though Hugh Falkus had come too, he still didn't know that he was the only survivor of the accident. Hugh was expecting to be taken to Gildes and find them all there busily drinking. Joe Sweeney was there in his jeep, but he said when he saw Joe put his hand under the seat and take out a bottle of whiskey, he reckoned he was going to hear something bad. And then Joe told him they were all lost. That was how Hugh found out. He immediately shut down and became businesslike and brusque and he didn't talk to me. I I, I, I could hardly look at him. I, I tried to talk to him, but naturally he didn't want to even see me. He probably thought, my God, I, I, can't, I can't talk to Claire. Brenda Osborne and her two sons were up at the Amethyst Hotel with Brenda's friend Thea. Went into Thea's room and then she told me there'd been an accident with Charles. Well, now she had a little boy called Charles and I thought she was talking about her own boy. And then finally it dawned on me, wasn't she was talking about Charles? Yes. So I called the boys in. They were outside in the garden. I called them in and told them. Yes. They were just silent, just like I was silent. Well, after Thea told me, I felt very cold. That's the effect of shock. She gave me some whiskey. She then took away from me because it didn't make any difference. I didn't feel any effect of it. Yes, silent. That's all. We were all silent. It became a, a, a kind of blur, and I no doubt was in shock. I seemed to, to shut down totally. I became very kind of um, uh, quiet and... Um, upright and unemotional. Some hours later, the bodies of Mrs. Falkus and Samuel Lee were washed up on the shore at Keem Bay. After the accident, Hugh spent the later part of that day with me, telling me about it. And we were in the Amethyst Hotel, I remember. And some men came for us. Apparently the police wanted Hugh to identify the the bodies of his wife and Sam. The other two people were drowned and their bodies were never found, Charles and Brennan. And so we went up to the, our village and the man who owned the hotel there, hotel and bar in our village, also had a big shed. And so the bodies were there and they went into the shed. I didn't want to see the dead bodies. And so I sat in the car, and after a little while, the man who had come for Hugh kind of dragged Hugh out of the shed. He seemed to have collapsed. They had his arm around their shoulders, and he sort of 
barely able to walk, staggered out. That's a very vivid memory in my mind, seeing that. At an inquest held in the Acklehead Hotel on Saturday evening, evidence of identification was given by Miss Mullen in connection with the bodies of Mrs. Falkus and Samuel Lee. A verdict of accidental drowning was returned. I had to identify the two bodies which were found. Hugh didn't identify them. He wasn't able to. He wasn't in a fit state to identify them. Diane and Sam. Recently, Claire has made contact with Sam Lee's daughter, Tessa, who was three when her father died. When she told me lately that she dreamt that night when she was a little girl that her father was in the sea with worms and I said he was and he's not. I was able to put my hand out to him and just touch him. Claire's father was the chief telegraphist in the Irish Independent Newsroom. He was alone in his office when news started coming in over the wires of the accident that had happened in Ackle. He immediately collapsed and thought I was a goner, you know. The doctor came to me and wanted to give me a steeping pill, which I didn't want to take. He said Forkers had also refused one. And he said, well, you won't be able to sleep. You'll be thinking about the accident all night. And then I thought, well, I have those two children to raise now by myself. I'd better be in good shape. So I took the pill. Yes, I did. Mr. Hugh Falkus, the only survivor of the Ackle tragedy, paid tribute to the people of Ackle Island, saying they'd been exceptionally kind and had undoubtedly saved his life. Referring to Charles Osborne, the owner of the boat, whose body is still missing, Mr. Falkus said he was a magnificent fellow and a magnificent seaman. Brenda and her two sons went to her sister's house in Ballina and returned to Ackle after a few days. As we approached Keel, along the sandy banks, as they were called, and you could see the water, little Rowan, my second son, started... Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he just kept that chant up all the way along. It was very moving. Yeah, so here it is. Sheila McHugh is an artist living in Ackle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so when you think about it... Charles Osborne's boat was never found, but 20 years ago, a local fisherman found something strange in his net. That went back under the boat. Yes. And this must have come up the bow of the boat. When he pulled out a hunk of metal, locals realised what it was. The propeller of Charles Osborne's boat. This rather beautiful piece of the, the end of the boat, the propeller, it's rusted and very gnarled and worn. And it's rather beautiful in its own way now and um, it's just amazing to see it it's very moving you are the one who are the living 
connection between this. Yeah, the and only now. living, really. Yes. Yeah. You were in this boat the day before it mm -hmm. went down. Exactly. And you went on to live a life. Claire went on to be a successful actor, to marry and to have a family. Brenda started her life without her husband, now caring for her two young sons by herself. I stayed in Echo because I didn't want to have a complete change for their lives from before my father died and after my father died. I thought that would be bad, like a curtain comes down as the before and after. So I stayed in Ackle. The people in the village, they were very good to me. For a whole month, somebody sat with me every evening. You know, they reckon you're busy during the day and children go to bed and then you sit there by yourself. And, and, and for a whole month, somebody sat beside me. They must have organised something between them because never did two people arrive. There was still the outstanding issue of the unfinished film, Shark Island. Now all a dream in was to find a shark. Mr. Folker said it was his intention to have the three quarters of the film Shark Island, which had been shot on Ackle, taken to London to see what could be done by way of completing it and using it to provide something for the families of Mr. Lee and Mr. Osborne. Peter filed a harpoon point razor sharpness while I kept a lookout for the black flash of dorsal fin and tail. The film was dedicated to those who lost their lives in the making of Shark Island. Bill Brendan, Diana Falkus, Sam Lee and Charles Osborne. They didn't give me very much money at all, quite a small amount. By a small amount, I mean a few hundred pounds. Not many hundred pounds, a few hundred pounds. And I don't know how much those films made. A hard sou'wester came sweeping in from the Atlantic and made it too rough for us to attempt any harpoon work. And a valuable week of our short season passed, showing a loss on fuel and gear and nothing in the kitty. Hugh Falkus went on to make many films and radio programmes and became renowned for his wide knowledge of fishing and hunting. He remarried twice and he died in 1996. Brenda stayed in Ackle for some years until she remarried and moved to America with her two sons, her new husband and their daughter. But we never spoke about the accident and I don't know. But we... I hear people talking about these things. They seem to think it's, it's peculiar not to talk about things. But we never talked about it. Didn't seem to be really much to say. It went exactly as we had planned. The shark gave one last short struggle, and then came easily to the surface and lay there belly up, held by the wire of the holding harpoon. The shark fishing industry in Ackle finally ended in 1984. The basking shark population is still endangered. We lashed the carcass alongside and towed it back to the harbour in triumph. There was one happy outcome from the tragedy for Claire. A young man from her acting school was sent to Ackle to take her home the day after the accident. And in the car was my future husband. He was Connor Evans, a fellow actor. So in that way, I suppose you could call it my happy ending. Claire went on to become a star of stage and screen. 
But that first part, as Kathleen, has never left her. Those people shouldn't have died. They shouldn't have been in a little craft which was practically sitting in a, a bubble on the sea. You know, I, I still wake up in the night and sit up and say, my God, they should be alive 